Has anyone been able to figure out how to get fruit trees or nut trees to produce faster? Or does anyone understand the clocks that, that govern, you know, how the tree knows, quote unquote, oh, it's year three. All right, it's time to make produce fruit or not? Well, some of that is can be modified, okay, through grafting onto a rootstock. That can modify that time frame. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Eric Staffney. He's an extension research professor at Mississippi State. We're going to talk about uh, fruit crops like blueberries, blackberries, grapes, etc. So we're going to talk about that, uh, fruits and nuts, etc. So Eric, thanks for coming. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and how you got into this uh, area of, uh, you know, of horticulture, agriculture, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that's a that's a good question about, you know, how does one get to where one is later in life? And uh, I guess kind of my interest started in forestry, and that's what I studied as an undergraduate. But in the studying that, my interest was kind of more aligned to urban forestry or, or agroforestry, which were different angles on the traditional type of forestry. And, and, and so I was able to implement some of that you know, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Senegal. So I worked with trees, but also with fruit trees and, and gardens and that sort of stuff there. And that's kind of really brought me to horticulture. And from that point, I got interested in fruit crops specifically. And so I, I went ahead and, and studied that in graduate school. And that is kind of where I headed along the, along the track. I was lucky enough to stay with fruit crops as I progressed in my career. Hmm, okay. Um, so out of the fruit crops, which ones, uh, you know, I don't know, have you had the most experience with? Have you grown the most? Yeah. You know, early in my career, I, I did a lot with uh, grapes, especially wine grapes and, uh, and table grapes. And then I've kind of transitioned to blueberries and blackberries. I still work with grapes and muscadines. And now I kind of have added uh, passion fruit to my cadre of things that I work with. But uh, it's still, uh, you know, throughout my career, which has now been 17 years as a professor of some level or other, I've worked with uh, all of these crops at some point. So let's say for, um, you know, a beginner what would be the easiest fruit crop or nut crop that they could grow and why? Yeah, well, some of that depends on where you're located. You know, if you've got particular growing conditions, uh, you know, if I, I'm in South Mississippi, so we're not that far from the Gulf Coast. Conditions are very rainy and humid, lots of fungal pressure. So you're looking at things like blueberries or muscadines are you know, somewhat easier to grow. Pecan would be a nut crop. But in other areas of the country, that may not be the case or that, you know, other things might be easier to grow in some place like the West Coast. So where we might have problems with certain types of 
you know, wine grapes. They grow great along the West Coast, you know. So it, a lot of that does depend on the conditions that you're growing. In. Well, right. You know, makes sense. What What's some of the fastest things that uh, you can grow? I know like a lot of nuts and fruits it takes multi years for them to produce. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the something like uh, uh, blackberries uh, or if you're in an area that can grow them raspberries, those are quick turnaround crops. Um, you plant them and you're going to start getting a little bit of fruit the next year. And by the third year, you're getting quite a bit of fruit. Blueberries are fairly quick. You know, you're getting something by the, the third year and by the fifth year, you're, you're in full production. Uh, grapes are kind of on a similar time scale to that. So a lot of these crops that are have, you know, that are woody, that create a lot of uh, kind of plant architecture, those take a little bit longer. You know, the fruit trees that you're talking about, uh, peaches or, or pecans or uh, apple trees, you know, those can take much, much longer than like five years. In, in some cases, pecan tree, it may be 10 years before you're getting uh, some sort of uh, good production. So, you know, with small fruit crops, you can, you can reduce that to a shorter time cycle and, and get things that are, are much quicker turnaround. Has anyone been able to figure out how to get fruit trees or nut trees to produce faster? Or does anyone understand the clocks that, that govern, you know, how the tree knows, quote unquote, oh, it's year three. All right, it's time to make produce fruit or not? Well, some of that is uh, can be modified, okay, through grafting onto a rootstock. That can modify that time frame some. But these you know, some things like fruit trees, uh, peach tree, and then you've grafted it onto a rootstock where you're taking a mature part of that tree and, and placing it on that rootstock. You can get a faster production turnaround by doing that. But some of these trees, you know, if you're growing it from a seed, uh, which fruit trees are generally not done except for something like uh, maybe you're doing a pecan tree, even those, those are mostly grafted. You know, it has to go through this juvenile phase where it's developing the root system. It's having a developing a canopy size. It has to, you know, have the have enough plant infrastructure there in order to accumulate nutrients and redistribute those, and also the um, you know hormones that would initiate things like production. Well, again, has anyone characterized why some of these plants will grow in, again, year three or year five, but not a year earlier? Like, how consistent is that? You know, for, um, I don't know, let's say uh, peaches, I think, are what, five years? You know, are there, are there plants that will do it in three or four or six, or is it always five years? And if so, no, again, no. has anyone studied this process? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm not aware of that type of that studies that have been done in that area, but uh, there are differences among varieties and, and differences um, uh, in that precocious fruiting. So I, I'm probably more familiar with something like in pecan trees where there's a huge difference. So a, a variety that's precocious, maybe like a Pawnee would be six years, whereas you're talking about something like a Stewart variety might be 10 years. So there are these differences. Why those occur, um, I'm not you know, sure why that happens, and I haven't done research in that area. My, 
research is, is not aligned with that, but, you know, the breeders would look for that in terms of precocious uh, fruiting and select away from those varieties that are, have long fruiting initiation cycles. So it can be something that's selected for. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So what are some of the research questions that you're trying to answer in regards to the stuff that you grow? Yeah. You know, being an extension, uh, most of my research it tries to be very applied. So it tries to answer a question that a grower might have, something of how to grow, you know, blueberries better or, you know, how to produce more blackberries in the field and those sort of things. So, you know, one example that I get is um, in, in Mississippi, we have a lot of old blueberry uh, plantings that haven't been kept up. So in that case, with these rabbit eye blueberries, which are more native type species that we grow down here, they can get quite large and they get overgrown. They get a lot of dead wood in them. And so productivity goes down. So somebody may come along and buy that field and want to revitalize it. And the question becomes, well, how do I do that? And so there hasn't been a lot of research done on that. So I took that idea and did some research recently where we cut them, the bushes back to different levels. You know, some prior recommendations that cut them all the way off at the ground and let them re-sprout. And there's, uh, there was other uh, recommendations in, in other places that say, no, 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 cut them back to a certain height. So what we did was three different things. We cut them back to the ground. We cut them back at about two feet top high. And then we added a, a, another treatment, phosphorus acid, to the soil, hoping that that might provide some sort of uh, beneficial impact to the plant to make them fruit quicker or grow faster. Um, now, the phosphorus acid had no effect at all, but the cutting, the pruning did. So bushes that were cut at the ground level took longer to come into production than those that were uh, cut at two feet tall. So the ones that were cut at two feet produce more shoots and produce more flowers and fruit faster than those that were cut at the ground. What do you mean you slipped off the branches below two feet? Where you slipped off the branches above left, two feet? What do you mean you cut? The trunk. We left two feet of the trunk from the ground up. So everything else came off. And it was, you know, you could just cut it off with a chainsaw at two feet tall. And so that, then it, and at that point, it re-sprouts. And we did this. The, the key to doing this is early enough in the season, uh, in the summer, that you can get that it can re-sprout and grow during the rest of the summer and into the fall, set flower buds and fruiting buds for the next year. 
And so that means if somebody can start harvesting in the next year and get a significant amount of fruit, then that's an obviously an economic return that's valuable for someone who's um, you know trying to make a living doing it. So you said when you trimmed up to two feet and then the like the foliage started, then it worked better. But if you left it too low, what they didn't grow as well the trees. Yeah, if we cut them off at the ground level, just left nothing and left, uh, had them re-sprout from the roots, it took longer. So it's not to say that it wasn't, you know, in the long term was good, but the, the chances for getting economic return earlier were not as good because they took much longer to produce growth that was adequate for producing fruit. Well, do you think anything... Uh, any of this has to do with the sun being able to reach down through the canopy. If it was too low, you know, given that there's other trees around, maybe that's why uh, it took longer to grow. No, I, I think it, what it is is that probably what it is is with stored energy within the trunk that was left. So there's wood there, and you know that that has energy stored in it. It's got nutrients, carbohydrates, sugars, water. All that stuff is still there. And there's buds along the, that trunk that can be pushed out to create new growth. Whereas if you cut all of that off and just left it from the roots, they would have to push up the new growth from just the root system. And, um, and it couldn't take advantage. What I see what you're saying is they couldn't take advantage of photosynthesis as quickly um, because it takes longer to push that new growth, create the leaves, and to kind of drive the whole process of feeding itself their sunlight. Um, so yeah, that probably does have some sort of factor to it. Hmm. Okay. Um, uh, another question, I don't know if you know this, but um, you know, let's say, uh, I don't know, what, what trees are you very familiar with? Like, uh, or plants, blueberries, or you know, what are some of the fruits that you know the most about? Well, the ones I know most about are probably blueberries and blackberries and, and grapes. Hmm. So how long on, you know, if I grow a blueberry bush or blackberry bush, how long does it take for them to produce the blackberries or blueberries? And then how many years will they produce until they stop? Yeah. So, okay. So with the blueberry can, can vary some because there's different kinds of blueberry and we have uh, rabbit eye blueberries, which we grow here. We also have Southern high bush blueberries, which we grow here in Mississippi. There are regular high bush blueberries, which are growing more Northern parts of the country. So for us, a Southern high bush blueberry would come into production within the uh, third year. You would get about five years of good production and then it would start to decline because it's disease factors, insect factors, just overall, you know, it's just not as thrifty of a plant uh, when we compare it to a rabbit eye, which is a different species but it's native to this region. So again, it would take about three years to get production, but those plants can live for decades and keep producing as long as management is good because they're more adapted to our environment. They're more resistant or tolerant to most of the diseases and insects that we have. So that provides them, you know, a better adaptation to our region and um, therefore better long-term production. Well, yeah, what I was going to ask you is, um, so if like a blueberry bush, you know, produces in year X and it produces, let's say for five years, 
what are the, the blueberry how the blueberries different in the first year that they're produced let's say versus the last year you know because I, I don't know i would think their composition will be different their their flavor profile their nutrient profile what, what's been observed right you know there's i don't know the results offhand here's what i would expect because you have a smaller plant uh, you have less of a developed root system. You have fewer leaves. My guess, uh, you know, in, is that you're going to have probably fruit that might, and I'm just going to say might, be less sweet or uh, maybe a little bit smaller than an older plant. However, there's another factor there is if you have fewer uh, fruit on the plant, you have less competition for the resources that are there. So, you know, if there's enough resources to go around, it could be the same size or the same uh, sweetness as you get later on in a plant that has more fruit. So, you know, would you expect maybe a little bit of difference between the earlier and later? Yeah, I would say possibly, but it's not something that um, most especially in blueberries or blackberries, most growers are probably not going to have a, a really noticeable difference. Now, where I've heard more of that being discussed is with wine grapes and that younger vines just don't create as good a vintage as older vines just because of their, you know, they haven't developed a root system. Uh, the, the canopy system is not as developed. And so the, the sugars and the acids and all that are not as well balanced early on as they are later on in the vine's life. Mm, okay. So what are, what are some of the new, um, again, research topics that you're working on in terms of, uh, you know, blueberries and blackberries and other plants that you're just trying to, you know, maximize yield or, you know, what are some of the things that you're working on? Yeah. You know, in terms of blueberries and blackberries, I kind of look for, uh, things that are creating issues uh, for growers. And one of the things in blackberries I've been doing is we have this abiotic issue called white grouplet disorder. It's caused by high heat conditions, or at least we think that's what it's caused by, but it's also a genetic factor in there. So different varieties respond differently. And what it is, is a blackberry is made up of all these little bitty grouplets. Okay. So it's, a, it's an aggregate fruit. Each one of those has a seed inside of it. But sometimes in, in, if the conditions are right or wrong, depending on how you look at it, it will turn a whitish color instead of being black. Why this occurs, uh, we know that it's genetically driven. Different varieties have different uh, levels of this expression and the environment. So it's, it appears that hot weather, especially drastic changes in, in, you know, from going from cool to hot weather may drive this. And so what I've done is try to look at different ways to mitigate that for growing. And one way to do that we found is that if you, you provide shade over top of the plant, it almost reduces that problem entirely. And which is a good thing, except that shade structures cost money and uh, there may be other factors in there, too, that limit the uh, application of that. So if you're really concerned about it, yes, you can provide shade and limits, lim eliminates that problem. Another thing that we tried is adding more nitrogen. And what we found is that 
over time, we did this for three years, that if we doubled the amount of nitrogen that we gave to the plant, it did reduce over a three-year period the amount of these white droplets that showed up in, in a highly susceptible variety. And so, again, that's another thing where you're saying, well, the application of this uh, is that economically feasible with the prices of fertilizer? Is it environmentally feasible by adding, you know, more fertilizer to the soil? So, you know, th those are things that we're just kind of trying to look for answers and, and give growers options. So those are a couple of things I've worked with there. And then also what I've been devoting time to in the last couple of years is um, working with passion fruit, um, trying to look maybe somewhat forward uh, with our changing environment, getting warmer. Are we going to be able to grow things that we previously could not grow here? So passion fruit's one of those things I've looked at. And I've been also breeding with that, with the native passion fruit that we have uh, to introduce a little, little bit more cold hardiness, maybe a little more precocious fruiting to it as well. So that's something I've worked with a couple of years. I don't know, any big events coming for, uh, you know, growing these type of trees, you know, fruits and nuts, any research that's in the works that holds a lot of promise to uh, dramatically change it? Or is it going to be just a, a slow, steady improvement and, you know, trying different things and selective breeding to get us where we want to go? Yeah, that's, you know, the breeding aspect of this is, is something that takes a long time. So in, in most of these fruit crops, it can take from the time you make a cross to when a new variety is released, it can be about 10 years with, you know, a small fruit crop like a blueberry or a blackberry. And if you're talking, you know, a tree fruit or a pecan, it can be decades uh, before you get to a new variety. So, you know, these things take a lot of time when there's, you know, of course, a lot of new technologies out there, the GMO type things, the CRISPR technologies um, that can potentially help speed that up. But um, they're still kind of, you know, in the infancy or early stages of, of being useful for breeding in certain crops. So there's a lot of unknowns in those sort of things. So, you know, in our world uh, of fruit, there's not necessarily things that just come out and, and make a huge impact. It's more kind of a slow thing. Although, you know, one of the things that I think we're seeing in blackberries that's making a huge impact is something called primocane fruiting, or another name is fall fruiting blackberry. So for almost the entire existence of people, humans growing blackberries, this trait did not exist. And, um, but it was found and developed and cultivated by University of Arkansas and now they've released some varieties that actually can produce two crops in a year. This was common or more common in raspberries, but not in blackberries. So now we have blackberries that will produce potentially two crops in a year, one in the spring and one. In the and so that gives a huge you know, advantage for growers who can produce that sort of thing. Um, the downside is in areas like where I live and, and work, it's not really viable because the flowering, the fruiting for the fall crop occurs in the middle of summer. And when it's 95 degrees with high humidity, 
that's not good for flowers. So the flowers tend to uh, essentially burn up and not be able to be pollinated at that temperature. And so we don't get the good fall crops. But in places on the West Coast, Oregon, California, that can be somewhat you know, changed by having more moderate. So that's probably the mm -hmm. biggest development that I'm aware of in, in small fruit crops recently. Right, gotcha, okay. What's the reason for doing uh, passion fruit? It's just a new one that you think would be, uh, I mean, I, I, in the U.S., I don't know how much passion fruit is grown, any, or is it all imported, or is this new? Yeah, that's a good question, because, uh, you know, it's not well known. I think that it's, it's a, the reasons I, I kind of chose it is, you know, one is kind of, I have a personal interest in it, but two, I see that there's uh, a lot more interest in the marketplace for this particular crop, you know, people of Hispanic origin or, or culture know of this crop. And so we are seeing an increase in that population within the United States. So the familiarity is there. And, um, and as I mentioned before, our climate is warming and we're able to grow things that we can't grow before. Now, currently passion fruit is grown commercially in South Florida and, and some in California, South, Southern California, and Hawaii and Puerto Rico. So those are the areas where most of it is grown. There's a little bit, you know, grown here and there in other places, South Texas and other places like that trying it. But even so, there's not a lot being grown. And most of it that we get is imported as, as a juice or a concentrate from other places. So, um, you know, the, the center of origin for passion fruit is in South America. So, you know, they have lots and lots and lots of it that they grow there. They process it and they send it to us fairly cheaply as a processed product. But almost all of what's grown currently in the U.S. is for, for fresh market. So some would, would buy it and just eat it as, as a fresh product. So I think the potential is there to, to grow that market and make it something that we can have at least a, a somewhat of a niche market in, in different southern states where uh, they don't get froze out. The, because the vines that are, are tropical in nature, but uh, like I said, I was, I'm, I'm breeding with some more cold hardy uh, plant material that hopefully we can kind of increase the area we can grow these particular plants. Okay. Um, as an extension agent, do you have a, a big grow on campus that students help out with? Or, uh, you know, like where are the plants that your husband located at? And, you know, whoever sees them. That's a great question. You know, the, the way that the extension system it kind of works is that, that we collaborate with the research. So the, the university has an extension branch, it has a research branch, it has a teaching branch. And so they're all working together in, in some way. And so the research branch has uh, experiment stations across the state. And, and many states have this same type of system. So I actually am not on campus. I'm about three and a half hours drive south of campus on, a, on an experiment station. And that is where we grow the plants. Uh, so we have... Uh, you know, we have, we grow blueberries and blackberries and passion fruit and grapes and muscadines and all those sort of things on our experiment stations. And that's where we do the research at. 
that's where we host things like workshops and field days and educational events as well to bring the public in to see what we're doing. How often uh, can the public come see and what does that look like? Do they get training or they just come see for an hour or, you know, at at Mississippi State? (laughs) Is there a big program for students? Well, the thing about it, it's very difficult for students uh, because we're so far away from campus. So we do have graduate students. So, so students who are getting their master's degree or, or PhD, they do, uh, they are housed here. Uh, they work here uh, with us. Um, the undergraduate student, that's, that's a different thing because it's so far away from campus. But yeah, so those students can work with us. You know, uh, we host these types of events for the public as educational things, and they can look differently depending on what the uh, key aspect is we're trying to convey. So we might hold something like a pruning workshop so where I go and I talk about pruning grapes or blueberries or whatever, and then demonstrate it. And then they could ask questions and then they would have the opportunity to go out and practice themselves on something. And and pruning is one of those things where people are kind of afraid that they might prune it wrong. So if we show them right and then they can do it, you know, that's a a really uh, good and satisfying aspect of of extension Mm. to be able to have people to do that. And then then something like- uh, Uh, Lost you for a quick second. Yeah, what's what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Um, I don't know if you have any videos online or- you know, what kind of materials yeah, can people see about the stuff you're growing and the advice you give? Yeah, the, the Mississippi State University Extension has a website. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.